From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. Hello and welcome into another weekly edition of the Automotive ADHD Podcast. Matt West here hanging out with you a little bit colder now uh, here in Colorado Springs. We've been having 60 degree weather like all week and then today 60 degrees dropping down to like 12 in the span of 24 hours. Definitely getting cold, but no snow on the horizon. None yet. I, you know, I like driving in the snow. Maybe I'm kind of weird about that. Um, driving in the snow to me at least is fun. It's, it's always an opportunity for me to, to get the car to step out a little bit in the snow. Now getting stuck is no fun, but I mean, Hey, come on, sliding around in the snow, Lots of fun, and I am back this week. Last week was a best of. Uh, I was a little bit sick, shook uh, shook off the sickness, the cold. I don't know if it was COVID. I don't know what it was. Uh, was not doing good, was not talking well. <laughs> More importantly, though, some friends would tell me I don't do that anyway. So who am I to argue with that? But I got a lot of great things to talk about today. We have the rubber shortage that is going on. Yeah, add that to the list of uh, shortages. And then we also have how Koenigsegg has built the fastest revving production car engine ever all time it's the fastest one not the engine itself it's not the most powerful the car's not the fastest car in the world but it does rev the quickest and it's really cool how they did this actually you would be um You'd be surprised to see how they did it and then we're also going to talk about how the driver's ed system is failing i mean to put it lightly it is failing here in the united states it is not doing well but before i get into that before we get into any of that, I want to tell you about um, this. Uh, I saw this recently. It's a $5 million mansion. You're like, oh, why is he talking about houses? This is a car show. Well, it is probably got the best uh, garage of any house ever. And, you know, as, as car enthusiasts, uh, having a good garage is probably one of the biggest challenges. Um, now, this place, it's probably a nice house. Who cares? The garage, though, 12 thousand square feet two-story garage two stories like a parking garage um even cooler it has underground tunnels and these tunnels connect it to the main house so you go underground into the house or into your garage either or that's pretty cool it also has a fully furnished shop with toolboxes lifts uh it's got bathrooms a lounge a kitchen and uh, I think this is fantastic because, I mean, again, here's the problem. Okay, all right, whatever. It's $5 million. Don't, don't worry about the small details like the money. Don't worry, don't worry about it. Um, what's cool about it is, like, again, you never find houses built for car people. This is a house built for a car person. It's in Lake Michigan. It's a, it's a, okay, it's near Lake Michigan, rather. Not actually in the lake. But, um, you know, it's one of those things that, like, okay, I have been, you know, I, I recently moved into the house I'm in. And... Uh, uh, it took like three months to find it. And uh, the housing market's crazy. But above all things, I kept, you know, looking for houses. And uh, whether you're buying or you're renting and you look at the listings and they're always like, you know, beautiful garden, beautiful yard, you know, nice furnished, uh, you know, uh, wet bar in the basement, all this stuff. I'm like, I don't care. What's the garage like? And they would never list anything about the garage or even if it had one sometimes. So I, I got really fortunate with the place I'm in. I have a very nice garage. It's pretty big. Uh, it's a two-car garage, but it's really deep, which is nice because I can fit three cars in there if you squeeze one in the back sideways. See, thinking, thinking outside of the box. You can get one in there, three cars. Works out okay. Could, would I wish it was bigger? Yeah, this uh, $5 million house near Lake Michigan. I mean, here's my proposal for this. Because, all right, $5 million, 
That's a lot of money. You got to offset that cost somehow, right? So what you do, you buy the house, assuming you have five million to start with, you rent the house out and then you just live in the garage. Yeah. And then it's perfect. If someone else is living in the house, who cares? Who cares about the house anyway? Someone else has it. That pays your mortgage. You get the garage. It seems like a great idea to me. I don't know. Hey, that, that's what I would do. So, um, but hey, before we get into anything else, ladies, gentlemen, Ford Pintos, let us talk now about the looming rubber shortage. Yes, this is something that is very important to anyone who owns a car because cars have lots of rubber in them, namely the tires, uh, but there's lots of rubber in other places too. Um, and we can add this to the growing list of, quote, shortages, you know. All right, we got the chip shortage, you know, we got the lettuce shortage, we got the whatever, insert something here shortage. Um, now this, however, is not necessarily the fault of the COVID pandemic. Partially is, but not entirely. There's a lot of other things going on. Um, and I do partially blame crossover and pickup truck drivers. You're, you're they're the ones, there's the one to blame. They're the ones to blame. But, but um, no, the, to understand what's going on, though, we also kind of have to understand what goes into tires because, um, you know, I, I have destroyed many tires before. A great number of tires have uh, met their demise at my hand. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It's always fun doing that. But uh, the fact is that a lot of tires uh, still use natural rubber in the production process, you know, and you kind of think, wow, 2021, we still use like real rubber from rubber trees. Yeah, you bet we do. Um, not entirely, though. A lot of tires now are a composite of all sorts of different rubbers, synthetic rubbers. Um, there's going to be actual, you know, natural rubber. There's going to be all sorts of different things in there, metal bands. There's even sulfur in there and all sorts of weird stuff. So, but natural rubber is still used in a lot of tires because of certain properties it has that make it desirable for whatever application you're working on. And, uh, you know, be that more grip or whatever, it, it is still used a lot. It's the best compound. They haven't really figured out how to make a synthetic one that is equally as uh, cost effective and just as good. So, that said, um, the issue is with rubber trees now, and this is why we're having a little bit of a shortage. Um, and what's going on is that there is a fungal infection, a disease that is spreading and affecting rubber trees all over the place. Now, they get rubber. Rubber trees are, they have to grow in humid climates. Um, and they're primarily, the big markets for rubber trees are in Thailand and Indonesia. Uh, and so part of it is this, this fungal infection that is killing the rubber trees. And the rubber trees, by the way, take seven years from the, like, from the point when they plant them to when they can actually start, you know, tapping them and harvesting the the rubber, which is basically the um, the sap. Like think of it like a like a maple tree. You tap it and the the sap comes out. You know, the maple syrup. It's the the rubber comes out. Um, and uh, so before they can do that, it takes seven years. You plant the tree. Seven years later, it is ready to go and start. You know, producing rubber, making money for the farmers and so forth. Now, uh, like I said earlier, too, a lot of this is happening in Thailand and some of the economics in Thailand are also playing a factor here. So the so-called rubber shortage is not necessarily any one thing. It's not, oh, it's is, we're having a shortage because of COVID or, oh, it's just the fungal infection. No, politics and economics are taking a toll on it as well. The rubber farmers are finding that they're, be, they're less able to sell the rubber for high dollar, you know, high amounts of money, and they're taking a lot more of losses. And a lot of people are getting out of the business of being rubber farmers and taking their land and uh, converting it to all sorts of other things. So political and economic reasons are part of that. And then 
I will say the pandemic has contributed. So a lot of this information is coming from uh, Kelly Blue Book, as well as uh, Bloomberg and a bunch of other places as well. But, um, you know, uh, Bloomberg even cited that, uh, you know, making stuff because of the pandemic, making medical equipment. So personal protective equipment, you know, gloves, uh, you know, face masks, all these different things that actually have rubber in them has uh, taken a massive toll on the actual just supply of natural rubber. So that is definitely because uh, a part of it. Also, another thing cited is tape and packaging because of the pandemic, because more people are shipping things in boxes that have to be taped up. And a lot of that box, uh, those boxes and a lot of the adhesives and stuff have components that are made from rubber that comes from the rubber trees, which is also where we get the rubber for our cars and stuff. So it's all kind of tied into this big thing that has resulted now in 20, the end of 2021 for, uh, you know, uh, rubber to actually be in a little bit of a shortage. Now we haven't seen it in the terms of actually not having tires or bushings for our cars. It's not there yet. Um, but manufacturers are saying that, you know, uh, Ford GM, uh, you know, Chrysler, well, uh, Stellantis now, I don't, I don't care. I'm going to call them Chrysler anyway, but uh, they are all saying that they are aware of the shortage, but they don't see any impacts yet to the supply chain. But yeah, that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. That's just saying, well, we know it's coming, but we don't necessarily know when it's coming. Oh, and another thing I, I mentioned earlier here, another uh, contributing factor, contributing factor to uh, the rubber shortage is truck and SUV and uh, crossover buyers. Uh, and then the reason is, um, and again, Bloomberg citing the uh, fact that uh, those cars and this fact that trucks have bigger tires than small passenger cars. And so do SUVs. They have bigger tires, more sidewall, bigger wheels overall. And as a result, they use more rubber to make the tires. And this is interesting because what happens when you have that happening and then suddenly you have a huge influx, specifically here in America, in the U.S., uh, of tons of people buying pickup trucks and, and, and crossovers. I mean, when was the last time you actually saw a brand new sedan driving off of a showroom floor? You don't. It's all pickup trucks. It's all crossovers. And guess what? They wear bigger tires than other cars. So that is actually caused a substantial contribution to the uh, the rubber shortage. Now, uh, again, this it doesn't mean there's any actual disruptions to the supply chain yet. But what it does mean for the consumer, that's you and me, is that prices are going to go up and they already have. So Newsweek uh, reported that there was a 6.2% increase in tire cost compared to just a year ago. And that's completely separate from general market inflation that we're experiencing. That's in addition to the inflation. So not only is inflation making our tires more expensive, the lack of rubber is also making the tires more expensive. When you think about it, you know, it's supply and demand. Demand is high, supply is low now. It's going to be more expensive. Um, now, one thing, too, that's interesting is China is the biggest consumer of rubber. Um, they use nearly six times as much rubber as the U.S. Uh, and uh, especially last year, they used to about six times as much. And um, an interesting thing is there's a uh, so there's a big rubber distributor 
Um, one of the actually the big the biggest three rubber distributors. There's one of them here in Colorado Springs, right where I'm broadcasting from. Very cool, right? Well, the CEO, it's called Smoko North America, um, said that uh, that China took advantage of, uh, and they said this in an interview with um, Bloomberg. But uh, they said that China took advantage of the low demand during 2020. So the you know the big meat of the pandemic, they took advantage of that and just started buying tons and tons of rubber, stockpiling it. Uh, and they did this with other things too, other commodities, precious metals, uh, oil, all sorts of stuff. But rubber was a big one. And they probably foresaw, you know, needing this rubber for, you know, a lot of the pandemic stuff going on, you know, again, gloves and, you know, medical equipment. But uh, the fact is too, they're such a big country with so many people, they use the most of it out of anybody. Uh, so yeah, it's just an interesting uh, thought there that, you know, the U.S., we think, yeah, we're driving around in our muscle cars and we're <laughs> blowing tires off our cars, smoking them, doing burnouts. We don't even use the most rubber. I mean, even out of any of the kind of developed Western countries, we don't use the most amount of rubber, um, which we could change that. We could do more burnouts. You know, Dodge is hiring for their uh, chief donut executive, their chief donut officer. By the way, the uh, I talked about that a few weeks ago. Applications for that are going to be accepted as of January. And, you know, mine is going going to be in there because who doesn't want to get paid to do donuts so anyway that's cool now my take on this um by the way with uh you know u.s manufacturers uh you know the big three saying oh well we know about the rubber shortage but we're really not all that worried about it and, and my take is of course they're not all that worried about it because sure yeah they use rubber to make uh, the bushings and their suspension and mounts and engine mounts and all sorts of stuff but as far as tires go manufacturers really only have to sell you a set of tires once because think about this like you get the tires that come with the car and then you're responsible <coughs> and then you're responsible for replacing those tires after you've bought the car. And most people aren't going to be going to the dealership to buy their new tires. They're going to be going to, you know, Joe Schmo's tire shop or whatever. Um, so, you know, that's the thing. The manufacturer, well, yeah, we're not worried about the rubber shortage at all, specifically relating to tires. Well, of course they're not. They only have to sell you a set of tires once. So, um, but what this does affect again is the consumer, you and me with the cars. I don't even care if you've bought a used car for $600. You need tires for that car. And eventually, whatever garbage tires came on said $600 car will wear out and you'll have to buy more tires. So, yeah, this absolutely affects the consumer. And it makes sense why these big manufacturers aren't concerned. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll see what this does. I think, you know, inflated tire prices, again, are more of an issue for you and me. But um, and it's especially for me, you know, if you, you, you know, <laughs> if you use a set of tires every couple of years, that's good. I go through a set of tires every few months. So, um which is, yeah, that's not a problem with the tires. That's usually the nut behind the wheel. Uh, that would be me. So, yeah, it's my own fault. It is my own fault. But, hey, you know what? Maybe we can uh, we can start a movement here of, uh, you know, burning the tires because there's not going to be any left. So we got to do all the donuts we can while we have them. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see where this goes. Uh, you know, 6% increase in tire prices. Not a huge amount. I mean, you're not going to be seeing that at the end of the day, you know, too heavily. But, you know, if it gets worse, you know, that 6% becomes 12% and that 12% becomes 50%, you know, just uh, thinking of a hypothetical, then that could be a little annoying. Like it's a lot harder to want to do burnouts in a car where your tires, instead of costing $200 a piece are like 
$600 a piece. So either or, either or we'll see where that goes. I don't think it'll too, be too big of a deal. I mean, you know, you, you got Pirelli and Bridgestone and all these big manufacturers that make the tires themselves. And uh, they're on they're on the up on this. You know, they do not want there to be a supply shortage because, well, then they wouldn't have anything to sell to you if there was a true disruption in the supply chain. So uh, hopefully they will figure that stuff out. All right, we're going to be moving on to the next segment of the show in just a minute. Going to be talking about Koenigsegg and how they have developed um, the fastest revving engine ever made. It's really cool. And I got the sound clips from it. It's going to be awesome. See you in a second. And now for how things work with an engineer. Transmissions. Shift. And that was how things work with an engineer. For more of how things work, go to patreon.com slash throttle warrior. Oh yeah, and we are rocketed for the second half of the show. Matt West here hanging out with you. Those car sounds are courtesy of Josh Maldonado. Now, last week or two weeks ago, he sent in his Acura TL Type S. Sounded amazing, but that is an NSX. Yeah, he mentioned a couple weeks ago that he works at an NSX tuning shop. How cool is that? That is a later model uh, NSX. You can even kind of hear the turbos uh, spooling, whistling there in the background. So uh, that is uh, really cool. Appreciate you sending that in, brother. Now, hey, if you got other car sounds to send in, of course... Anyone is welcome to email those to me, Matt at ThrottleWarrior.com. Alternatively, you can also post it on the Automotive ADHD Facebook page. I'll have a post pinned at the top. You can comment below on that post with your car sound. Send it in. Tell your friends, hey, my car's on the show. It's cool. Now, hey, speaking of really cool car sounds, um, F1 cars from about 15 years ago. They make good noises, don't they, right? So <laughs> they uh, the V10 era of F1 was widely one of the best eras of F1 racing. I would say the second best era just in terms of engine noise. But this is important, and why I'm talking about it is because there is a Ferrari F1 engine for sale from 2000 to 2003 season. It came up online for sale. I saw this, and I was like... Oh, come on. Why? Why am I so broke with all my other cars sucking up my money when I could be buying an F1 car engine? So it's a three liter, roughly 90 degree V10 capable of 845 horsepower. And get this. 18,300 RPM. Yeah, you like VTEC in your Honda? No, <laughs> it's got nothing on this. Even my old broken S2000 doesn't have anything on 18,000 thousand rpm oh my god give this a listen give this a listen from the golden era of f1 this is what that engine sounds like oh yeah that's hot i love it that is uh, michael schumacher behind the wheel of a uh, ferrari f1 car from the 2003 japan grand prix oh man i, I love it, it v10s just sound amazing there's just just a certain tone that they have that is awesome now whoever buys this engine it is up for auction no idea what the reserve is i have no idea how much this is going to cost i mean it, it could be anywhere from ten thousand dollars to fifty who, who knows um but whoever manages to score this thing um I better put it in something hilarious. Like, I want to see this engine, I don't know, crammed into the front end of a Civic or something. I get, whoever does this needs to have enough sense of humor to 
put it in something it really shouldn't be in. Granted, you put this in anything that isn't an F1 car, then, yeah, I mean, you're already putting it in something it shouldn't be in, but it would still be really cool, though. So that said, whoever does get this engine has got to be pretty good at uh, fabrication work because uh, it's not like you can just go to your auto zone and buy, uh, you know, a starter motor or something for an F1. Well, actually, they don't need a starter motor. So actually, that's not a problem. But uh, it's not like you could go there and get, I don't know, something like, an oil pump for it um, or a clutch. Where are you going to get an F1 clutch? Have you seen those clutches? They're like, they're super tiny. They're really, uh, really narrow, but uh, really thick. And uh, I don't know. That's, again, where are you going to get that? If you buy this engine, you better be good at making your own stuff. I will say that. Now, speaking of all things high revving, it is no secret that I am a sucker for high revving engines. I love my old Toyota 4AGEs, uh, revving those up to 8,000 RPM, uh, you know, Honda motors. I love all that high revving stuff. It's really fun to me. It's just so exhilarating. Now, Koenigsegg has just announced that they have made the fastest revving production car engine ever. Yes. And uh, this is in the new Koenigsegg Jesko. Jesko? It's a Swedish word. I'm going to try to pronounce that one right. But um, it's really incredible because... They uh, previous one of you know the, there's all these supercars. They rev really fast, and you know the previous car that was really famous for how fast it revved was the um, Lexus LFA. Which you know if you remember the old Top Gear video on it from like ten years ago now, they you know were it was so cool that oh it revs so fast a, a traditional tachometer couldn't keep up with it so they had to give it a digital one and bear in mind this was in the time before digital tachometers and screens and stuff were you know commonplace so uh but no this revs even higher than that so there is a um technical term that engine manufacturers have and it's called pickup speed and that is basically how fast the car revs from being at idle sitting at idle all the way to its red line how fast, you know, you, if you're just sitting at idle, you don't blip the throttle or anything. You just stab that throttle, wide open throttle. How quickly does it go all the way up to the rev line? Uh, the rev line? The red line. I guess it technically is the rev line. But this Koenigsegg engine can make it from idle to red line at three, or th sorry, 31,700 RPM per second. I mean, not that it has a 30,000 RPM uh, red line. It's much lower than that. But the fact that if it had that, it would go from zero or not zero idle to 31,000 RPM in one second. One second. That is incredible. How do you, that's not even fathomable. That's just one second. There it is. 31,000 RPM. Again, uh, stressing the point that it doesn't actually do 31,000. Its red line is, I guess, closer to somewhere around 8,500. But the fact is, it's going to go from, you know, idle to that 8,500 RPM that fast. I mean, within a fraction of a second. Uh, and this sounds fantastic, by the way. So if you want to hear what this sounds like, uh, Koenigsegg posted this video on their, uh, their YouTube page. Give this a listen. Give this a listen. Let's just the engine settle in. And here we go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean if you if you weren't paying attention, you would have missed it. That is again, really really cool stuff there. And uh, how they did this now. This is where it gets cool because you don't just make a fast revving engine by doing nothing. No. So what this this engine is able to do this through a combination of all sorts of stuff, um, including the gearbox. In fact, Koenigsegg says the gearbox is um, kind of integral to this happening. And um, and so the gearbox on this car 
is integral to the engine. It's part of the engine assembly. It's not just a separate unit. Um, and uh, it, the gearbox has no synchros, no flywheel, and basically no clutch, no traditional clutch. It's got wet clutches like a motorcycle. It's got seven of those and then another one by the diff. Um, and, and to give you, you know, perspective, if, you, if you're not familiar with this car or if of what Koenigsegg does as a whole, they make probably some of the most interesting and exotic supercars. Uh, they're very expensive, but they're very interesting from a mechanical perspective as opposed to having a, you know, just a traditional engine. You know, I mean, they pioneered a technology recently where the engine has no camshaft. A camshaft in a traditional engine is responsible mechanically for opening and closing the valves, essentially. Um, and uh, they don't have that at all. They call it free valve. It's really cool. A buddy of mine, uh, Wesley Kagan, actually put uh, that on a Miata. He built his own version of it, which is incredible. And I'm going to uh, try to get him on the show here at a later date. Really cool stuff. But not getting into that. What Again, Koenigsegg is kind of known for doing mechanically weird and interesting things. And to me, as a car enthusiast, I like supercars, but... I also like the mechanical weirdness, the eccentric nature of uh, what Koenigsegg does is really cool. Honestly, it's uh, they're pushing the envelope of what's capable with, you know, actual mechanical engineering in a world where, you know, all these uh, hypercars are going to electric Koenigsegg still making just bonkers, weird engines. So uh, getting back to this really fast revving engine, another thing that this doesn't have is a flywheel. So the way you make an engine rev fast is reducing rotational mass, that rotational inertia. And think of it like this. When you put your foot on the gas and, you know, the combustion process happens in the engine and it pushes the pistons down, which rotate the crankshaft, which then rotate the flywheel, then the clutch, and then the output shaft that goes into the transmission. And then you spin, ultimately, that makes it to the rear wheels. Well, what you do to get that engine to rev fast is reduce that rotational mass. So if there's less mass for it to overcome, it's going to spin up faster. And uh, Koenigsegg, again, did this without a flywheel, without anything like that, and with this really, really trick gearbox. Now, one cool thing, on the note of the gearbox, they say it's, it's, so it's a nine-speed gearbox, and, um, and apparently you can shift into it and any gear at any time, it's a, uh, you know, it's a paddle shift gearbox, but again, it's using these clutches, these seven different clutches, and it's able to shift incredibly fast, faster than you could in a manual, which I'd still argue the manual is more fun, but whatever, my opinion doesn't matter <laughs> when it comes to this, but, um, you know, it's able to go from any gear at any time into any other gear. If you've ever driven like a, uh, dual clutch automatic gearbox with paddle shifters, see, this is more than a dual clutch. They have seven clutches. Eight, I guess. But um, if you've ever driven that, the, the way it works is, you know, or to put it simply, the gearbox has to keep one gear engaged at any time and uh, the other gear basically with the uh, the clutch ready to go, the second clutch ready to go. It's ready to engage, but that means in a traditional dual clutch, the transmission and the computer has to predict what gear you're going to use next so it can pre-select that gear and get it ready to go. I mean, that's a really layman's way of putting it, but think of it like that. Now, with Koenigsegg's gearbox, it can just do any one of them at any time within like a millisecond. So super fast, but that gearbox also means less rotational inertia. So, you know, a, a standard way that, you know, track car guys like to get, you know, a faster responding engine uh, is to put a lighter weight flywheel uh, in a car. 
And uh, you can see this a lot. Some cars like the S2000, for instance, have a really light factory flywheel uh, on the early cars. It's like a 14 pound flywheel, whereas on a, a normal vehicle like a truck or a Jeep or something, that's going to be like a 40 pound flywheel. So, you know, part of that is one reason why, you know, you can get an engine to spin up faster. Now, does this mean you have any more power? Not really. Having a fast spinning engine has no real bearing on total power potential because the, the final power number is not given, uh, you know, over a period of time, how quickly it revs up. But what that does do, having a fast revving engine, is it means that that engine is going to be responsive. It is going to be really good for the driver. The driver wants, you know, throttle input now. It's going to give you throttle now. It's not going to uh, spin up and then come up to power. It's going to come up to power very quickly. So, you know, it's not a peak power thing. People have this misconception that, ooh, I'm going to put a lighter weight flywheel because it's less mass and therefore easier to move and therefore the engine should have more power. It really doesn't work that way. It's just going to give you more overall response and make the car better to drive. You know, a good driving car isn't just about having peak horsepower numbers. On the contrary, the peak horsepower numbers are like, the least important thing when it comes to having a really good car and a really easy car to drive hard and fast. So just, uh, you know, throwing that out there. But now, again, it's one of these things that, um, that you know, Koenigsegg is just doing the coolest stuff. Come on. Why can't we get more manufacturers doing cool things? Well, actually, I'll answer my own question. <laughs> the reason is because that stuff is expensive. If GM says, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to put it in a Camaro. And that Camaro is going to be $290,000 because of that. Yeah, that's that's why no one does it. You know, Koenigseggs, uh, they are the high-end supercars. I would even put them on a pedestal above Ferrari, Lamborghini, and stuff. I mean, they make really low-volume, really cool cars, and uh, basically money is of no concern. If you buy a Koenigsegg, money is of literally zero concern. In fact, if you buy a Koenigsegg, you would be the type of guy to, uh, uh, or gal, uh, to buy that $5 million mansion I mentioned at the top of the show. <laughs> so you could park your whole fleet of Koenigseggs in it. So uh, yeah, but this is one of those things. Very cool stuff. I want to see more of it. I almost wonder how we can kind of steal some of these ideas and apply them to more of the grassroots kind of racing and, and uh, you know, uh, hobbyist side of cars. Uh, again, like uh, Wesley Kagan, you know, he built Koenigsegg's free valve system, except using easily available stuff and uh, got it running on a Miata for cheap, like pretty darn cheap. So same principle, applying it to something else. Uh, but again, I'm going to get in touch with him, see if we can get him on for a show uh, and, and explain, really have him explain how that, that free valve uh, system works. That would be uh, really cool. So anyway, let's get on to the third segment of the show. That's going to be coming up right after this. Every day, thousands go without the ability to buy necessary and life-saving parts. Parts like turbos, coilovers, and wheels. I'm Steve Turbocharged BRZ. It doesn't run because I can play with my connecting rod through the hole in my block. Project cars sit unfinished, waiting for parts, collecting dust. My name is Todd, and I bought a rotary. It's okay, bro. We'll uh, swap it. But no more. You, yes you, can make a difference. For as little as $5 per month, you can put an end to Project Cars suffering and support your favorite podcast. 
patreon.com slash throttlewarrior. Donate now and receive special perks. Sponsored by Autoholics Anonymous and the Speed Council. Third half of the show. Matt West here, hanging out with you. Automotive ADHD podcast. Remember to send your car sounds into Matt at ThrottleWarrior.com or on the Automotive ADHD Facebook page. We got a lot of good stuff to talk about. So, what I want to get into here for this last segment is the driver's ed system. So, I, I was driving with a colleague the other day, and uh, uh, and we were talking about merging onto the highway. And, uh, you know, and I noticed there's an issue, at least here in Colorado, there is an issue that whenever you're in the right lane doing the speed limit on a highway and you come across an on-ramp where traffic is merging from a side street onto the highway, there are, you know, the speed limit 65 and there are a boatload of people in that on-ramp, you know, that acceleration lane trying to get over at, ooh, I don't know, 35 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour still well over 20 miles an hour under the speed limit. And that causes all sorts of problems because you got traffic doing 65 in the right lane and then and not even the fast lane, right? Not even the passing lane as it's correctly uh, titled. But, uh, you know, no, not even there. Just the regular right lane. You should be able to be doing the speed limit in there. And uh, this traffic's merging really slow. And it got me thinking like, man, has no one paid attention at all to driver's ed? Or have we, have we all forgotten it too? I mean, you know, you look at the average driver on the road and, and you know, you look at someone, say, in their 40s and uh, they haven't taken a driving test, presumably since they were 16 years old. Yeah. And uh, in, again, most places, especially here in the U.S., that driving age is going to be 16. I know in a lot of European countries that driving age is going to be 18, which I disagree with that on a, on a fundamental level. I think you should have people driving earlier, the earlier, the better, because, you know, uh, his skills and the developing brain is, is able to learn stuff and make muscle memory at a younger age much better than even at a couple years older. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's not the argument I'm trying to make today. What I'm trying to make is the point that the driver's ed system here in the U.S. is kind of faulty. So I decided just to, after this conversation with one of my colleagues, I decided to take a look. I'm like, you know, I uh, haven't seen the Colorado driver's ed manual uh, in like nine years. It's been, it's been a while. And uh, I decided to take a look at their newest publication of it. And I was kind of appalled at how basic and short and uh, non-informational it is like they have pages and pages in it uh, explaining why drunk driving is bad which it is uh, but they also are like oh don't speed don't drunk drive don't do distracted driving yes those teenagers with their smartphones don't let them do the smartphone thing uh, it, it, I mean there's pages devoted to that and then I try to find the proper merging guidelines uh, when merging on a highway again just looking at that example and uh, like there's like ha barely half a paragraph. There's like two sentences that, yes, merge, use the acceleration lane, which that's what it's called. Merge lane acceleration. It's, it's it's an acceleration lane. That's what the state at least here calls it. You know, and it says, yes, use that to match the speed of traffic. Obviously, if traffic in the right lane is, is really heavy and it's already doing 35, you don't want to be trying to merge into it at 65. You want to match that speed. Uh, and what causes dangerous uh, incidents on the highway is 
uh, mismatching of speed usually. Uh, you know, a lot of crashes are caused because of that. In fact, if there's a mismatch of speed, that's kind of a prerequisite to having any sort of crash. Like if you crash into a brick wall and you're doing 65, well, that brick wall is doing zero. There's your mismatch of speed. There's your crash. Same thing applies if you're trying to merge into 65 mile an hour traffic at 35. There's a mismatch of speed and the potential for a collision. You're really going to have no substantial collision if two cars are doing 65 and they sort of merge into each other badly and bump into each other. That could be bad. Yeah, it could cause a spin. But for the most part, I'd rather that than smacking, you know, uh, you know, a wall with a 30 mile an hour difference, which is effectively what's happening here. But so the, the book just goes on. I was looking through the, the handbook and I'm sure wherever you are, uh, whether you're in the U.S. or other countries, I was looking at the podcast statistics. There are people in the U.S. or the, the U.S., of course, uh, in the U.K. And I want to thank you for that. Now, um, that said, if you're looking at any of your driver's ed manuals, especially the ones here in the U.S., they're probably going to be fairly similar state to state. You know, Utah and Colorado are not going to have very different uh, rules when it comes to driving, uh, you know, and one thing that's also very broken about this system, in my opinion, is they teach you all these rules. Yes, this sign means that this sign means that this sign means don't do this. Well, you rarely run into those signs on the road. And when you do, you already kind of know it's like, oh, yeah, that sign. It, you don't even need to memorize the sign because the sign is designed to be easily read while you're moving. Right. You know, it's designed to be interpreted on the fly. Um, and so the, the driver's ed manual goes into all this great detail about different signs and, you know, all this different stuff. And again, don't distract drive. Don't drive distracted. There you go. Um, and it, nothing about actual car control and car physics. And so here's the thing. They expect people to know all this stuff, all this book work, and then just go out there and sort of know what your car is supposed to do. Now, here in the U.S., the driver's ed system uh, works in a way where you usually would get your learner's permit before you get your actual license. And the learner's permit allows you to drive with an instructor or a parent, um, assuming they've signed all the documentation to be the you know designated uh, driver in the vehicle or not driver, but you know the person following along, making sure the student's not doing anything bad. So a lot of people learn from their parents. And this is a problem because a lot of parents and a lot of people and adults in general suck at driving. They really, I mean, you just go out on the roads. Lots of people just suck horribly at driving. And I'm not saying I'm the, you know, uh, saint of driving. No, I, I have my moments too, where it's like, oh, that was, that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. We all have that no matter how far we are into cars. Now, being a car enthusiast, I do try to hold myself to a higher standard, but still, um, you know, and I, I say I'm more of a driving enthusiast than a car enthusiast, but no, I mean, the, the fact is most people are going to get their learner's permit. They are going to uh, learn from their parents who may not be the best teachers, not even the best drivers. They just may in generally not be very good at communicating that information either. And then these people are going to go take a multiple choice test on signs and uh, how to not drive distractedly. Uh, and uh, and then they're, they're going to get their license, which, you know, and I think the problem is here is the lack of information when it comes to actual vehicle control. Like, you know, here in Colorado, we get winter. We get lots of snow most of the time, though this season, this this fall going into winter would lead you to believe otherwise. I mean, it's been beautiful here, um, but 
typically when we have bad weather, you know, people suck at driving. I mean, they just, uh, you know, don't respond to the car correctly at all. They don't counter steer correctly. They don't know the difference between how you should handle your car, whether it's a front wheel drive car, all wheel drive car, rear wheel drive car, uh, or I don't know, some half track vehicle. Moral of the story is they don't know that there's any difference. And, you know, the driver's ed manual tells you a very simple, you know, counter steer method when you're oversteering a car. They don't mention anything about like understeering a car, uh, which is what, you know, most people are going to be driving these days, front wheel drive cars, maybe all wheel drive, you know, crossovers are getting pretty popular and they all have all wheel drive. But for the most part, people nowadays are driving front wheel drive. There's no mention in there of understeer. And what does front wheel drive do predominantly? Um, it understeers when you lose that traction in the front. If you're turning, uh, it, it doesn't, you know, it's going to understeer. Those front wheels are going to lose traction. You're going to be putting steering input in and the front wheels are just going to be doing nothing and you'll careen in a straight line, even though you've got the wheel all the way wrenched to, to one side. So they don't talk about anything uh, about that. And, you know, in I think when it comes to uh, driver's ed schools, there is the, you know, group of people who do go out of their way to pay for their kids to go learn about driving, um, you know, from an actual instructor as opposed to teaching them themselves. That that happens pretty often. But even then they're saying they're going through a lot of the basics like brake, stop, even if, you know, someone already has that that down. You know, they're not going out on a skid pad. In other countries, uh, Norway, for example, they do things very differently. Now, granted, in other European countries, it's also very hard to get your driver's license. Um, you know, it's so impossibly easy to get a license here in the United States. And it's still a wonder to me, too, how some people like flunk their test like eight times. Uh, it's <laughs> like I, I get the, the book work part of it is probably not everybody's thing. But I mean, it's really a very easy uh, test to uh, pass uh, in most places. So, you know, what I think, I yeah, I think fundamentally the system is broken and doesn't actually teach people car control. It doesn't teach people uh, the fundamentals of uh, drivetrains, which, yeah, not everyone needs to know how their car works. Not everyone cares to know how their car works. But if you are operating the machine, it is at least your duty to understand, is it front wheel drive? Is it rear wheel drive? Is it all wheel drive? Because those things are going to determine how I have to correct a um, low traction situation should that happen. So, you know, that, you know, yeah, some people don't care to know anything about their cars. No, you are you, for those little details. You, you have to know that to competently operate the machine. That is that is a necessary piece of information. So what can we do about this, though? It's all fine and dandy complaining. I'm very good at complaining. Trust me. But what can we do about it? I mean, I think that, you know, to for this to actually change, there needs to be, you know, some wide sweeping changes in budgets and legislation. Um, for uh, state, uh, you know, Department of Motor Vehicle stuff, you know, they uh, in fact, you know, budgets for DMV things have been pulled back over the years compared to uh, just 10, 15 years ago. They've had much smaller budgets than they have had in the past, which definitely doesn't help them make better instructional material on the state side of things. Uh, so, yeah, the, for the only thing that for anything to happen stateside, there's got to be these big sweeping changes in politics, which probably won't happen. So the next best thing is to actually go out, you know, if the state is not going to help you learn how to drive, the best thing to do is go out and figure it out for yourself. Now, I'm assuming you're, you know, already a, a competent driver, but you never know. The fact is, even competent drivers um, have a lot of people I've talked to, you know, who consider themselves very good drivers have never taken a car out in a snowy parking lot 
and uh, just tried to rip around in it. See what happens when you push the car into understeer. Like, you know, know the relationship between your your front tire traction, steering, and braking. The front tires in a front-wheel drive car have to compensate for all of those things. They have to, the, the tires have to compensate for traction, uh, you know, just generally. They also have to compensate for power. They have to put that power down. They have to steer, which puts more force on them, and they have to brake. So if you're accelerating and turning and then suddenly trying to brake and you're trying to go around a, a corner, that's going to exceed the limits of uh, traction for those tires. And I talked about this in more detail, by the way, a few episodes back, talking about front-wheel drive versus rear-wheel drive going up like um, snowy or slippery inclines. Really interesting stuff. You should check that out if you uh, care to uh, learn more about traction and dynamics and how that works. Talk about like traction points, if you will, just a kind of easy way to think about it. So yeah, I think the best thing to do is just go out and get training or even better. You know, when I was in uh, college, I really got into going to local autocrosses with my uh, cheap Mustang I had. I mean, it was one of those things. You don't have to have a lot of money to do it. It's like 40 bucks to get in. You don't have to have a race car at all. Tons of people go out in their daily drivers and rip around a skid pad with some cones. And uh, everyone at these, you know, little events, um, everyone is super friendly there. You know, lots of people are always willing to, oh yeah, ride along with me. See how I do the course. And lots of people would ride along too with new drivers and just give them points, coaching, you know, tips and things on how to, how to best handle their car, you know, and uh, that's one of those things that can be done very cheaply, 40 bucks with whatever car you have, just as long as it's not leaking oil all over the track and passes tech inspection, which is just meaning it's not going to blow up, you know? So, uh, you know, that's one of those things. That's the best thing to do. And, you know, again, when I was in college doing that, you know, I thought, yeah, I'm a great driver. Of course, I thought I was a great driver. I was horrible. In fact, I'm still a pretty bad driver on track. I am not the fastest guy out there by any means. But going out there and learning it was like a whole new world of, wow, I, I've never slid a car on dry pavement before. I've only done it in the snow and, you know, things like that. You realize all these things. And that, in my opinion, is one way like right now, anyone can just go do uh, because I don't think we can rely on the governments to change the system uh, very well. You know, I mean, I've heard of people suggest, you know, for uh, keeping people, uh, keeping drivers educated. Oh, well, let's have a recertification program every couple of years. That That's a really hard bargain when it comes to just looking at, you know, how you have your license and, you know, how uh, people in especially adult life are super busy. I mean, that's I don't think that's ever going to work. I think while that would definitely solve an issue, if you had people retesting and recertifying on their license every five years, that would also weed out a lot of people who are just, you know, maybe because of age, you know, regrettably or something, they're just not fit to drive anymore. Um, I don't think from a you know, freedom perspective that would fly here in the U.S. I don't think people politically would get behind that necessarily. So I wouldn't recommend that. But you know what? Hey, do what you got to do. Enjoy your car. That is the most important thing. Get out there. Enjoy it. Maybe find an autocross or just go bomb around in a snowy parking lot. Like the best thing you can do is just take your car to the limit of traction in a safe place to do it and just see what happens. And just play around with it. And that building that muscle memory and that response is better than reading about it in any type of book or having me tell you, oh, traction works this way and it does this. And, and no, no, just go do it. That's the easiest. <laughs> that's the easiest thing I could say. Moral of the story is send it. 
that's always a good moral, right? When you can just send it, that's easy, easy stuff. As long as it's safe, don't crash into anyone. <laughs> don't get a ticket doing it either. If you do, I am not responsible. You didn't hear it from me. So there you go. On the on that note, it is time to wrap the show up. Of course, you can check out all things Throttle Warrior at ThrottleWarrior.com. Got some big changes to the website coming up really soon. I am excited to that, really launching that, getting that done. Of course, we have the Facebook page, Automotive ADHD on Facebook. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever fine podcasts and this one are sold or downloaded. Hopefully you didn't pay money for it, but if you would like to, you can do that and it would be much appreciated. Check out the Patreon also up at ThrottleWarrior.com. I will see you next time when I race a bald guy who is weirdly obsessed with family. See you then. Mm -hmm.